Okay, so if you are uh, kind of unfamiliar here or new here, uh, I am not Pastor Pesnell. I'm Sam Andreatis, and you may or may not know I'm, I've been invited by your pastor and session to preach here on a more regular basis. We're going to shoot for once a month. And I was really happy to say, hey, maybe I can um, help my friend Darren out here. Uh, very happy to be able to do that. Um, but then um, he kind of he sat down, Darren, and decided what he wanted covered in January. Um, and the topic of your money and how you spend your money fell to me. So I've quickly determined how this is going to go. When there's an uncomfortable topic, it's going to fall to me. Okay. If there's something that's, that uh, he doesn't want to preach on, it's not very popular, it's going to fall to me. Okay. And so we are here today. Uh, but um, no, but seriously, you know, I, I used to, when I was a young minister, I didn't like preaching about money at all because um, I thought it was, it kind of came across as self-serving. I wanted to just to let the Holy Spirit kind of deal with people about money. And so I, I didn't like, uh, I'd, I'd rather li leave it alone and not preach about money. Um, but I changed my mind <clears throat> about that. I actually enjoy it now because of two things. Uh, one is I've found that people really need it. You, you actually really need uh, sermons, a lot of sermons about money, uh, because it's so much a part of our lives. It's so important to us, and we really need help with it. But the other reason that I've changed my mind is because the Bible talks so much about money. It's in there all the time, and it keeps coming up over and over again. It doesn't matter who, what part of the Bible you're reading or what you're doing. It's, there's so much about it in the Bible. There's so much wisdom in there about about money. So I've actually started to enjoy it. Now I enjoy preaching about money uh, because it gives a chance to explore some of this wisdom with you that the Bible has for us. So I'm going to take you today to a passage in the Old Testament in the law, in the book of Deuteronomy. And Deuteronomy is a book of God's covenant renewal with his people Israel. He makes a suzerain vassal treaty with, with his people and that's the book of Deuteronomy. And it's, it's right on the cusp of them entering the promised land. So it's, it's, it's telling the people how to live in the land that God is going to give them. And <clears throat> the reason why this is good to go to is because it helps us with uh, two problems that we have with money. One is a problem of not having it. <laughs> the other is the problem of not giving it. And uh, we could say maybe these are the two problems that we have with money, that come up with money. Uh, on the one hand, um, some of us might be in a situation or come into a situation where we're being pressed and crushed by debt. And that becomes a real difficulty for us. And there are words here in this law to help us with that. Um, it's, it's especially important to see because so many more people these days are coming under the crushing uh, weight of debt in their lives. You know, last time I looked, you have that statement in your reflection that 40 million Americans are now carrying student debt, not just mortgages, but student debt. And their total debt total, totals 
their the the total debt totals over 1.3 trillion dollars 1.3 trillion dollars the average person with student debt is carrying $30,000 in student debt. And uh, I don't doubt that I'm speaking to some of you here who are sitting here. And you know that this starts to crush you if you don't get uh, that job after, after graduation and the interest payments start building up, you know, it starts pushing down on you. It's like uh, what he says here, there's, there's, there are a few things that crush the life out of someone like a burden of debt. It breaks our spirit, crushes ambition, destroys our home, and drives to despair as nothing else. It's a big problem, and the debt grows. You don't manage. You don't have good debt management. It starts to grow. It starts to push down. You're weighted down, and you can't get up with the interest payments. It's just crushing. That's exactly right. Well, there are words for you in uh, the Old Testament law this morning. But then there are those of us on the other side who have the other problem. Maybe you're not being crushed by debt, but you have the problem of clinging to the money that you do have. And there's something funny about money. You know, money begs calculation. Whenever there's money involved, there's all this calculation. And, and it gets more and more intricate uh, the more you go. You know, if you are involved uh, with Drew and, and, and this project to, to, for your building fund, uh, congratulations, by the way. Uh, this congregation, if you don't know, kind of bit the bullet and is actually buying the space that you're worshiping in, which is wonderful. It's such a beautiful space that, that God has for you here. And uh, it's great, so, but you got to get a mortgage, right? Or if you're going to buy a home, talking to a young man here who's uh, setting out to buy his first home this morning. You know that you can't just go get a mortgage anymore. You can't get a mortgage these days. No, you have to get a mortgage product. Okay, it's a mortgage product, which makes it sound like you're getting something nifty when actually you're just incurring this <laughs> enormous debt on your shoulders. Uh, but it's, it's, it's a product because you've got to decide what kind of uh, mortgage you're going to get. And uh, you have to say, well, what are you, wh you going to get? Are you going to get a 30-year fixed or are you going to get a six-month arm? You know, but well, it depends on the climate, on, on the economic climate. And are you going to pay points? And when you shop around, you figure, well, wait a second. It's not really the interest rate. It's the APR. No, that's what you're really going for. You've got to make sure you get the best deal on your APR. And you've got to get all these things in a row as you're calculating it out. Once you've found the bank, the best bank with the best rate, the lowest appraisal fees, and then you have to decide, well, what index are you going to base your, your loan on? Is it going to be treasury bonds, or is it going to be the prime rate, or are you going to maybe get something more exotic? You're going to calculate out and go get the LIBOR rate, you know, which is where your, your interest is based on something that's going on in England. Um, probably not a good idea these days to do. But uh, it's calculate, calculate, calculate some more. Um, that's what it's at. That's what money is. You've got to get the best debt management possible. Whenever money is involved, um, it invites more and more minute calculations. And I find that I start to do this in terms of my giving. You know, I know I'm supposed to give to disadvantage, to give in some way. Uh, because I'm a Christian, I know you're supposed to do that. And so I find that I'm self-calculating 
so that I can give as little as possible and still be respectable in what I'm supposed to be giving. It just starts to go on inside me. It's about money. And so if you're like me, then this passage also has words for you too. Because it turns out that the Israelites did that too. And God wanted to address it. So whether you're crushed by having no cash or whether you're calculating your way out of compassion for the poor, this passage has something to say to you. So I want to invite you to stand, if you would, with me as we read from the book of Deuteronomy, this covenant renewal ceremony that God is giving them on the cusp of the promised land. It's Deuteronomy chapter 15, and it's printed there in your bulletin, if you'd like, or you can read in your Bible. I'm going to be reading from the ESV version. Deuteronomy chapter 15, again, and beginning in verse 1. At the end of every seven years, you shall grant a release. And this is the matter of the release. Every creditor shall release what he has lent to his neighbor. He shall not exact it of his neighbor, his brother, because the Lord's release has been proclaimed. Of a foreigner, you may exact it, but whatever of yours is with your brother, your hand shall release. But there will be no poor among you, for the Lord will bless you in the land that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance to possess. If only you will strictly obey the voice of the Lord your God, being careful to do all this commandment that I command you today. For the Lord your God will bless you as he promised you, and you shall lend to many nations, but you shall not borrow. And you shall rule over many nations, but they shall not rule over you. If among you one of your brothers should become poor in any of your towns within your land that the Lord your God is giving you, you shall not harden your heart or shut your hand against your poor brother, but you shall open your hand to him and lend him sufficient for his need, whatever it may be. Take care, lest there be an unworthy thought in your heart, and you say, the seventh year, the year of release, is near. And your eye look grudgingly on your poor brother, and you give him nothing. And he cried to the Lord against you, and you be guilty of sin. You shall give to him freely, and your heart shall not be grudging when you give to him, because for, for this the Lord your God will bless you in all your work and in all that you undertake. For there, there will never cease to be poor in the land. Therefore, I command you, you shall open wide your hand to your brother, to the needy and to the poor in your land. And this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please be seated. So I want to give you a little quiz this morning, two-question uh, two quiz for you on that passage. I want, to, I, want you to know, I want you to raise your hand if you can tell me which verse in that passage we just read is quoted in the New Testament. Who knows which of those verses is one of those verses that's quoted in the New Testament? Anybody can tell me in, in what we just read? Yeah, in the back? Good, very good. Verse 11, the poor you will always have with you. And who quoted that, by the way? None other than Jesus Christ. 
And you know what? It turns out Jesus actually likes quoting Deuteronomy because it's, a, it's God teaching the people how to live in the land that he's giving them. And, and it turns out he, Jesus quotes Deuteronomy a number of times. He likes quoting Deuteronomy. So if you want to understand Jesus Christ, you had better understand the book of Deuteronomy. He likes to do that. He likes to bring it up for us. And it's very interesting what he quotes there, that particular one, when he quotes it. Um, that leads me to my second question. And uh, that answer, the answer to that one was actually in your bulletin. So you had a little help there. I know you aren't looking, but uh, you might have gotten that one. This one, is, the answer isn't in the bulletin. So this is a little bit harder. I want you to raise your hand if while I was reading, you felt like you were hearing a contradiction in this passage between two verses. Okay? Yes, Ryan? What, can you tell me what verses that was? And, yeah, look at that, verse 4 and verse 11. Verse 11, there will never cease to be poor <laughs> in the land. Verse 4, there will be no poor <laughs> in the land. So, here, they're very, very much in the same passage. There will always be poor. There will never be poor. So what is it? It seems like a contradiction. Always, never. Which is it? Well, <clears throat> you could react to this in a number of ways. And this is true, actually, whenever you're reading your Bible and you're reading along and you come to something that seems like a contradiction. There are different things that you can do. One thing, one way you can react is you can say, well, there it is. You know, the Bible contradicts itself. And in fact, it contradicts itself in the same passage. So Moses was really a bozo because he couldn't write coherently in one paragraph. You know, this architect, basically, one of the architects of Western civilization, he just can't be coherent in the same passage. And the Bible is full of contradictions. There, I'm done. So you can react that way. You can read it that way. You know, another way you could read it is to say, ah, the reason why it seems like it was a contradiction is because this wasn't really written by one person, <clears throat> this particular book. It was, it's actually a patchwork. It's, it's, it's written by different authors, and, and not even different authors, different communities. And there was a priestly community, and there was a Yahweh's community, and they had different, uh, they had different objectives. They had different priorities. And then someone else came along later when they wrote about this same incident, and he patched them all together. He was called a redactor. And because he patched them all together, the, the redactor was something of a bozo. So he, he contradicted himself in the same passage because he was just throwing everything together. And let me tell you, if you take that reaction, then there's a dissertation waiting for you to write. And you can write dissertation after dissertation about this, and believe me, you'll get your doctorate just like that. So that's another uh, interpretation, another way you can read it. Or I'm going to give you a third, and it's the, it's the reaction that I have when I come across something that seems like a, a contradiction in the Bible, and it's, the, and it's the reaction that I've had for the last 40 years of studying the Bible very intently. And it is to react in this way. It's to say, ah, there's probably something here for me to learn. There's probably some point of wisdom that is in this tension that God specifically wants me to know. 
And if you take that tack, if you take that reaction with this passage, you will be rewarded. Because these two things, verse 4 and verse 11, my friends, are exactly the things that we need to know if we are going to deal with poverty. These two things are things that God wants us to hold together. It is this. Expect poverty and defy poverty. These are two things you have got to hold together whenever you're thinking about the poor. As a church, as a diaconate, Dick, Ryan, pay attention, or as a Christian. If you're going to understand poor, if you're really going to help poverty, if you're really going to understand it well, these are the two things you have got to hold together in your mind at the same time. You need to expect the situation of poverty, and at the same time, you need to aggressively defy the situation of poverty. And those two things are exactly what this law is ingeniously encouraging us to do. So let's look at it. Expecting poverty and defying poverty. First, verse 11. This is the one that Jesus quoted. First, you must expect poverty. Why? Why would you expect there would be a situation where there's always going to be poor? Well, for one, I mean, it could talk about the danger of <clears throat> natural disasters that cause poverty, and they happen because we have not fulfilled the original mandate to take dominion over the earth. There are forces in the earth that actually harm us. They create poverty. But even beyond that, there are forces in ourselves that haven't been conquered, forces that we call sin. And we're sinners. We're living in, in a sinful world. We make sinful decisions. Sometimes we don't handle things in the best way. Sometimes we make decisions that involve money that are wrong and bad. And so that's going to create poverty. As long as there is the problem of sin in people, you are going to have a problem of poverty. But there's another reason also. When people come together and form a society, and they're a society of sinners, you are going to have systemic ways in which people are kept poor. You're going to have systems of oppression in a society, in any society that involves sinners. You get a whole bunch of them together and they make a society, you're going to have forces that are just there in the society that keep people poor. And they'll always be there. So you'll have evil from without and evil from within that creates situations of ongoing poverty and keeps people poor. And, and by the way, you know, political, uh, political um, pol um, uh, politicians that take a course of trying to, trying to address poverty, they usually miss one or the other, you notice. When people are trying to form policy to try to help the poor and different programs, they're usually missing one of them. Either they kind of are, are there and, you know, focusing on people's personal responsibility and they're missing the fact that there are systems of oppression in society. Or they're th concentrating on the systems of oppression and uh, ignoring the personal immorality in people's lives. And that's why so many programs that are designed to help the poor don't work, because they're usually missing one or the other. But because they're there, you're always going to have uh, the poor. And as, as usual here, the Bible then is very accurate. Expect poverty. And, and verse 11, and Jesus, Jesus does not look at the world through rose-colored glasses. No, he does not. 
he's being very realistic, as usual. So yes, you've always got to expect poverty right in front of you, right around you. At the same time, verse 4, God wanted the Israelites to aggressively defy poverty. And it's, it tells us something about God, this law and other laws like it, and that is that God cares deeply about the disadvantaged. He cares deeply about those people who are being crushed under debt. Cares about them so. You know, this uh, picture that you've been looking at on the screen that uh, Rebecca worked uh, very well and hard to, to put up for us. Um, this is a bowl that uh, was uncovered by archaeologists, and it, it, came, it comes from Beth Shemesh in Israel in the, the 700s. So this is an 8th century bowl. Now, you can find other bowls like this around this other time. What's unusual about this bowl is that it has an inscription inside the bowl. You, if you look carefully on the top, you can see it there. Now, bowls were sometimes inscribed, but uh, that was on the outside. And it was usually with somebody's name. It was like, this bowl belongs to this person, right? It's inscribed on the outside of the bowl. But this, this is different because this bowl is inscribed on the inside. And the inscription are those three letters. It's old Hebrew letters. And uh, the best kind of way to read them is a which basically means your brother. So people puzzled about this, and what, what this was, what kind of bowl this could be. And Gabriel Barquet, I think, is, has given the best explanation of this. He's pointed out that what this really was, was a, a, a poor collection bowl. This is a bowl for collecting contributions for the poor. And this reference in this inscription is to our passage. If you look at verse 8 or verse 11, what are you supposed to do? You're supposed to open your hand to your brother. So what is this bowl doing? It's there for you to open your hand to your brother and make a contribution. And I just wanted to point this out because as far as I know, if I understand this correctly, this is the oldest poor box in the history of the world. The oldest evidence of collections coming for the poor. It comes right out of Israelite society, 8th century BC. What does it tell us? That God wanted a community. He formed a covenant community that cared deeply about the poor and about addressing those who had disadvantaged among them. And it's this archaeological evidence and also the evidence from the text that shows us God cared very much about helping people who were being crushed under debt and under, and under poverty. And so in verse 1, we have what this law is really about, the year of release. Every seventh year, something got canceled in what was owed. And, you know, we don't understand all of this. So we, don't, we don't have entirely the context, but it seems like something is being canceled, either the, either the debt itself or the interest on the debt. Um, every seventh year. Those of you might be, some of you might be more familiar with the year of Jubilee, which happens every seven, seven years, every seven, seven of seventh years, so 49 years, there was a year of Jubilee in which everything got canceled. Everything. 
And so it seems like what, what we have here is every seventh year is a little canceling, and then, it's, then the seventh seventh is a big canceling of everything in their society. And it's kind of remarkable that this law, that this law was part of Israelite society. It, you know, the picture that emerges from these things is that Israel was a, it was something have, had, a, had something of a controlled capitalism where there was incentive and free enterprise, but it had limits on it like this. And it really is an acknowledging of the, of the reality of poverty and, a, and an aggressive and, I would say, ingenious attack on poverty. And, you know, I just want to point out that the poor did not get this kind of treatment in the ancient Near East. This is unique. And I could stand here for a while, give you a lot of examples of this, how this is just what was going on here in, in Israel society, and what was supposed to be going on is unique in the ancient Uries. You can just look at the Hammurabi Code of the 18th century BC. That's a famous one. In, that, in, in the Hammurabi Code <coughs> of law, it was very clear. You had the gentleman and you had the mushkinum. And very, very different, the mushkinum was the poor and wasn't worth anything. A gentleman was worth something. None of this being made in God's image stuff. The Mushkinim was definitely of lower value than the gentleman. That's the way it usually was in ancient Near East. So this is unique. It shows you God's heart for the poor. And so the goal of this law, it's just... If it gives you a funny feeling, like, okay, seventh year, there's this debt, and it just goes away. It's like, you don't pay it, I don't pay it. Who's, you know, who pays it? It's like, where does it go? If that gives you a kind of funny feeling, well, it gave them a funny feeling, too. But God gave it to them to, to, to cultivate compassion in the community. He said, this is the heart that you're going to have. Hope, if you're poor, and compassion, if you're around the poor. Because, you know, the real issue when you're poor, if you notice, and you don't know this unless you've been un in that situation, but if you're being crushed under debt, the real issue is that you do not have hope. And so you can't take the practical steps that you need to take in order to step away and st start stepping out of poverty. What the poor really need is hope that life can be different. And that's what this law was giving Every seventh year, some people were walking around understanding that life could now be different. So on the one hand, it dealt with that problem. On the other hand, it was helping the Israelite who, like me, tries to calculate her way out of compassion. And the Isra that was what was going on in the Israelites. And you can tell that that's what's going on because of verse 9. You look like that, it's like you're starting to get closer to the year of release and somebody wants a loan from you. You know what the Israelites tended to start doing? They started to develop products. <laughs> it's not just mortgage, mortgage products. So you know we're getting closer to the year of release here, so I'll give you a little bit of a less of a deal here because you know, started to started to calculate their way out of the compassion that, that God wanted them to have for the poor. And so in verse 9, God says, if you start to do that, if you start to develop these products, 
it's, you know, this translation, ESV says unworthy. It's actually a very strong Hebrew word there. It's, uh, so some other translations I prefer to say wicked. It says if you start doing, if you start calculate, you start inevitably with money starting to calculate in regard to your giving to the poor, uh, it's wicked. It's wickedness. And so he's warning them uh, about their hearts. Now, this isn't speaking against financial planning, which often is actually showing more compassion. If, you, if you're taking, you know, at the beginning of the year, what do you know? It's the beginning of the year. If you sit down with your spouse and you say, okay, let, honey, let's, let's see how we can do it this year. Let's see how we can be generous by planning it out and seeing what we can do. That's actually showing more compassion for the disadvantaged than, you know, just sitting around waiting for these feelings for the poor to well up inside of you, you know. <laughs> Often it results in much less giving than if you sit down and plan it out. So it's, the law is not speaking against financial planning. It's causing us, and as it called them, to always force the question, am I now calculating my way out of compassion? So either way, whether you are have lost hope and lack hope, or whether you lack compassion, uh, this, this law is helping us and pointing it out for us. And you can tell it's trying to get at our hearts. Now, here's a very important part in the sermon. So if you kind of get what I'm saying, and I've helped you to understand the law better, the tendency is to say, ah, oh, I just want to deal with this. You might feel guilty about it. You might feel like it's, uh, you know, just something you don't really want to deal with and turn away. That is when we need to actually look closer, look deeper into the law, because the help that we need for our hearts is right here in the law. So rather than turn off, you know, turn away in guilt, let's turn to verse 11. Remember verse 11, remember what that was the one that Jesus quoted? The poor you will have with you always. You know, we only recited half of his sentence when he does quote that in Matthew 26, or uh, I guess Mark 14, or John 12. He finishes that sentence. Remember how he finishes it? Who can tell me how he finds it? The poor you always have with you. But what? What did he say? Come on, shout it. Come on, be bold. Sin boldly. What's the worst that could happen? You could be wrong. What's that? That's right. You, well, actually, what he says, you won't always have me, right? The poor you will always have with you, but you won't always have me. The poor you always have with you, but you won't always have me. Those words were uttered by our Lord Jesus Christ after dinner. He was at a dinner in Jerusalem with his disciples, and they were eating. And while they were eating, a woman comes in with a bottle of perfume, very expensive bottle of perfume. When I say very expensive bottle of perfume, I'm talking like thousands of dollars. If you can imagine, you think about a bottle of perfume worth thousands of dollars. She, she takes a bottle of perfume, comes over to Jesus, <laughs> and pours it over his head, empties it all over his head, dries down. And Judas Iscariot, 
Okay, he was Jesus. You were behind. I'm so sorry. Okay, Judas Iscariot and some of his other disciples object, right? They, they, say, they say, no, 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 no. This isn't good. This isn't good, Jesus, because, you know, she could have just given that money, to, that perfume to us. We could have sold and given the money to the poor, which tells us something, doesn't it? It tells us that Jesus must have been teaching his disciples to give to the poor, doesn't it, right? Otherwise, the objection wouldn't make any sense, right? It wouldn't make sense for Jesus to say, hey, why wasn't that given to the poor? Unless Jesus had sat in his own little covenant community, reconstituting Israel there, and, and, and he was teaching them. He was saying, we've got to give to the poor. We've got to give to the poor. So that's why that objection makes sense. You see what I'm saying? So it teaches us that Jesus was continuing this tradition of ancient Israel of saying, you've got to be concerned with the poor, right? And so they object and say, this, this could have been given to the poor. And Jesus said, but not in this case. And do you see what he's doing? Then he quotes Deuteronomy chapter 15. They object, should have been given to the poor. And Jesus quotes this Deuteronomy. But, and it seems like he might be subverting the law. He's saying, but, not here. Makes it sound like he, maybe he's contradicting the law, but he's not. He's doing something worse. <laughs> He's injecting himself into the law. You see what he's saying? He's saying, Judas, that law, remember that law that you used to read about in Elahadabarim, the law of the year of the release, that passage? That, that was really about me. That was written about me. See, God designed an entire national economic system to proclaim the coming of the Messiah, Jesus Christ. Because what was really going on, and we don't get this because we don't know the Old Testament, but you better believe that Judas Iscariot got this. He's saying, this law was really teaching about me. Remember that funny feeling that you got from the law? Like, you know, the debt there, the seventh year, you know, you don't pay it. And the other person, who, who pays? He said, that was really about me. There's a debt, and you don't pay it. Every seventh year, God wanted to teach them that there was a debt, and God has taken his debt on himself. And so you're forgiven. And you won't always have me, Judas. There's a window here of an opportunity. But you've got to realize this. I can cancel your debt. You're not always going to have that, so pay attention, Judas. Because this window is going to close. But I can be the cancellation of your debt, and you have a pretty big one. Are you going to do that? If you understand what I'm about to do, Jesus talking to, to Judas, if you understood what I'm about to do, then you knew that this woman coming in, essentially anointing me for burial, is doing exactly what's needed. You want compassion for the poor? Guess what has to come first? First, you have to know your debt is canceled. Then you will have compassion for the poor. The real compassion that I want you to have, not before that. So I can cancel your debt. That's what you have to realize. I can cancel your debt. That law is about me. And 
he's basically saying, I am the year of release. That's Jesus. Listen, you want the best, highest performing debt management? You want the best way to deal with it? Get the debt canceled. <laughs> That's the best way to deal with it. I can tell you what it does for, for someone, because I had an experience recently. And my wife and I have been carrying uh, actually two mortgages. And uh, one of the mortgages was a balloon mortgage. Now, that's the one you're never supposed to get, right? Because uh, it's just, just unwise. But it was the only way we could actually live in New York. But we had this balloon mortgage. And the balloon mortgage is, you know, the one where you pay very little for a while. But eventually, you know, the piper comes to roost or uh, whatever happens there. Um, you know, eventually, eventually you're going to have to pay. And you're going to have to pay a lot. And that's what we were coming up with. We had this balloon mortgage, and we were coming to the end of this time where we had been paying a little, 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 we are going to pay, you know, it was going to balloon. And uh, we hadn't planned on this, but, we, but um, we actually lost two of our parents. And so we ended up getting an inheritance uh, that just paid down the debt for us. Not completely, but it just made it so it's not a problem. I'll tell you, you're, you're looking at somebody who's walking four feet off the ground right now. You know why? Because I don't have the balloon anymore on my shoulders. I got the debt canceled. I'll tell you, that is what creates freedom. That is what does it for you. It's just to take the debt away. It's amazing, this feeling. It's like, ah, we don't have this anymore. Isn't that fantastic? <laughs> just thinking about it, I feel happy, you know? And you know where that leaves our hearts, oh Christian heart? Well, for one, it gives it, uh, if you're crushed, this is where you start. If you realize your real debt has been canceled, it, it gives you the understanding that life can be different. And you can, you can take those steps. That you, start, you, you start where you are, and you can start taking those practical steps. And by the way, we have a wonderful diaconate here, headed by Dick, who can help you if you are in that situation. The main thing you have to start with is right here. Jesus Christ gives you the, the assurance that life could be different. That's the one thing. But if you're on the other side, what does that do for our hearts? If we, if we are people who need to learn how to give, and give generously, I'll tell you what it does. It leaves your heart calculating in the other direction. Oh, it's still money, so it's still calculation. But now you start calculating how to do things so that you won't be repaid. It's like what Jesus says in Luke 14. He says, you know, you'll, you'll start giving dinners where you're not inviting your, your relatives and your rich friends. You'll be inviting other people, lest, he actually uses the word, lest you be repaid. Is that the Christian heart starts to think about ways it can do things so that it won't be repaid. You know, I had, a, I had this uh, man that I knew, this Christian, who got a hold of this, and, and he, he, he had a lot of fun with this. I'll tell you what he would do. He would find out where there was an economic need, and he would get, somehow get into that person's house you know, at some point, sometime when he was in that person's house. He would go into the bathroom, he'd take a significant amount of cash, and he would lift up the Kleenex in the bathroom, and he'd stick it under half of the Kleenex, you know? And then he'd leave. It was sort of like a delayed fuse, right? So people would go into the, clean, into the bathroom, take Kleenex, and sooner or later, 
sooner if they had a cold, you know? Sooner or later, you know, they pick a Kleenex, they go to for a Kleenex, that's all this cash. And it was untraceable. And that's why he did it. He had so much fun doing this. Because nobody could ever tell, well, where did this come from? You know, it might have been weeks or months before that he had even been in the house. You know, they didn't know where it was come from. And he enjoyed doing that. Friends, that's that's what the Christ, that's what the Spirit does with the Christian's heart. And I know there's stories kind of like this in Ironworks Church. You don't hear much about them because they're untraceable, you know. You don't hear much about it. But I know God is doing stuff like that because I know that's how the Holy Spirit operates among his people. And you've got to do that. You've got to, you've got to let your heart go in this direction and try to figure out ways to do things. That was a wonderful <clears throat> testimony we, we just had here, the, the offertory. You've got to figure out ways to do things so that you won't be repaid. The Christian heart needs to, you need to do that. Otherwise, you, it, it shrivels up and dies because you're running on a different fuel. And that's what Jesus Christ allows us to do. Christ's payment has freed us to pay for others. And, you know, I just want to, uh, before I close here and we come to the table, just want to point out since the beginning of the year, these are some of the things that Ironworks is doing. It's trying to help you to do that. Some of you know, or maybe you don't realize this, but everything you give to Ironworks Church, 5% of it immediately goes to help the disadvantaged. It goes into a mercy fund from which the deacons can draw. And by the way, your deacons are not just throwing money at problems. They are addressing situations holistically. So you can be confident that the money you're giving is going to help things in a, in a constructive way, in a holistic way, a theologically sound way. But that's every time you give money here, that's what's going, that's what's going on. Well, there are plans also this year to go to, um, to perhaps implement a different kind of offering system where we're going to have a, a, perhaps a separate offering. And that's something that's in the plan, uh, in the works here. So you might think about that, start planning for that, and how you can uh, be participating in that. That's one thing that's done. Uh, another thing that's, that uh, Ironworks is going to be doing to think about this more globally, to apply this law in our lives more globally. And you might not have heard a lot about it uh, recently, but uh, Ironworks has a, a kind of mission burden, specifically with the Yanada people, Yanadi people in India. And you're going to be hearing more about that this year if it's something that you can uh, also support and be uh, participate in. But that's a way of even looking beyond um, our borders here internationally uh, to India, to a place where there's a real need, and to try to help with that, to give forth, reach forth our hands uh, to our brothers there. So there are other ways to, um, to do that here at Ironworks Church to defy, aggressively defy poverty, as this law tells us to do. And uh, these are just a few of the uh, important ones we wanted to highlight. Okay, so as we come to the table, let's keep this in mind. You're in Christ, this is your joy. He has paid our debt so we can pay others. Amen. <laughs>